Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with journalist Mark Hertzgard and host Steve Heilig. Welcome, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started here. I'm here today with one of our longtime hosts at the New School at Commonweal, Steve Heilig, to welcome journalist and author Mark Hertzgard to the New School. We're recording this conversation, so we'll have audio and video produced for you on our website. We also put our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcast. Ken Adams is doing all the production and recording. As always, thank you, Ken. And finally, thank you for your donations to the new school. A lot of you donate um, when you register. And if you didn't, we hope you consider a donation today. We operate on a really slim budget. And your donations allow us to make these events available to everybody, regardless of their situation. And now we're ready to begin. Steve Heilig and Mark Hertzgard, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you very much, Kira. And hello to everybody. Good day or evening, depending where you are, because we often do have people from around the world on these. So I'm very pleased to be able to do this program today with somebody to talk about really the biggest issue in the world, on the planet. And um, very timely, given recent developments in our nation and beyond, but particularly with the recent election and inauguration. And I really doubt that we probably would have been able to get Mark Hertzgard on here if he wasn't a good friend of mine as well, because he's an extraordinarily busy man right now and uh, really one of the uh, best speakers we could have on this particular issue. So I think you've seen his bio if you looked at the uh, in the uh, page for this call. Uh, he is a veteran journalist on a lot of topics and author of quite a few books. I got a couple here that... Uh, Couple favorites. This is one that I've uh, I enjoyed, and I think it may be how we met uh, 18, 19 years ago because I reviewed this for the San Francisco Chronicle. It is called Eagle Shadow: Why America Fascinates and Infuriates the World. And uh, he was traveling the world when nine one one happened, and turned this into a book about our uh, standing as a nation in the whole world. And uh, it's a great one. There are quite a few others, but I will just say a personal favorite right here is uh, <laughs> called A Day in the Life, The Music and Artistry of the Beatles. Now, there are something like 700 books about the Beatles and people who know about these things call this one of the very best. So, But the last major book he's written is about our topic today, and it is called Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Came out in 2010, so a decade ago, and we're going to return to that. So... Mark, hi. Good morning. Good day. Really, really so, nice to be here with you and, of course, with Commonweal. You know, it reminds me, Steve, that that uh, The Eagle's Shadow was partly written at Commonweal. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an yeah. office there at that top floor um, uh, for about four months when I was writing that book. And I remember Michael, at one point when we decided to do this, looking at me with that very engaged and enthusiastic expression he somehow has, somehow sometimes has, and said, this is a really good idea. <laughs> so I've always been very uh, grateful to him for that. So it's nice to be back at Commonweal. 
Yeah, and that's the top floor is where we do when we have done and will hopefully again do our some of our presentations in person. So, you know, at some point we'll have you back there too. Cool. So when you and I were first talking about this last fall, we thought let's do this talk at some point and you wisely suggested let's wait till after the election and then let's wait till after the inauguration in the United States here. Uh, we had before the election, we had the concern that we might be in a great state of misery and doom and despair, but the election turned out differently. And now with the inauguration, it's a historic kind of norm for new presidents to have this kind of mythical first hundred days. What are they going to do in the first hundred days? Well, this has almost been like the first hundred hours where we have had more climate action and uh, attention and media presence than any time in history. So I would like to start off a bit with you talking about what this all means, what you were thinking and feeling and hoping for prior to the election, and then now since the inauguration, what has happened with all the executive orders and attention. And so to start off, you just talk about that as much as you wish, and then we'll go into a lot of uh, discussion. Sure. I've been saying to colleagues this week that uh, I literally cannot remember a day that had more climate news than this past Wednesday, which would be, let's see, today's the 29th, so January 27th. So one week after President Biden was inaugurated, a flurry of executive orders, uh, major executive orders on climate. It was the biggest day of climate news, I think, since really the, the Paris Climate Summit of 2015. And of course, that followed his very first day in office, which had another flurry of uh, executive orders on climate, where he uh, very famously rejoined the Paris Agreement, uh, canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, a number of other things. Of course, he's also been doing executive orders on a whole range of policies. But in the climate area, I think that there's absolutely no mistaking that uh, he's living up to what he said during the campaign that climate change is going to be uh, treated as an existential threat to the United States and to the humanity. <clears throat> and uh, crucially, that he is taking an all-of-government approach to climate and seeing it as intricately intertwined with the three other crises that the Biden-Harris administration will be addressing. So that's uh, obviously the pandemic, uh, the cratered economy, we've seen the highest unemployment rate uh, since World War II, and uh, racial justice and climate. So those are the four. And he quite properly is uh, seeing these as very tightly interrelated, racial justice and climate change in particular. But also COVID. You know, COVID uh, is in some ways a a very unfortunate but very uh, instructive, I think, parallel to the climate crisis. In the same, I mean, we even have some of the same phrases where you, you remember early on that uh, we wanted to bend the curve, to bend the curve on the number of infections in order to get the pandemic under control. Same phraseology is used in climate, but we have to bend the curve on the emissions today in order to get to where we want to be in 2030 and 2050 and beyond. Uh, and then uh, also, and I know this is something we're going to touch on later, um, especially for our work in uh, with covering climate now, trying to work with other 
news organizations to do a better job of covering this story. Um, it's, it's really interesting uh, the way that the media really, I think, stepped up on the COVID story. They, I think they did a pretty darn good job in most of 2020 of, A, following the science uh, and recognizing that this was indeed a, a, a very serious problem that became a crisis and then eventually exploded into an emergency. And they were clear about that. They uh, did a lot of very uh, I think constructive, uh, professional reporting of it. And they also uh, treated it like an emergency. They played the story big and they were uh, constructive in the sense of informing the public that you've got to, here's how to protect yourself with you know, physical distancing and masks and so forth. And also they did not let themselves be intimidated or distracted by partisan nonsense, partisan disinformation. And I think that's a pretty good model for what we now need to see on the climate emergency, which is to follow the science, recognize what the science says, which is that this is an emergency. That's not activist rhetoric. That's what the science is now saying in peer-reviewed articles. We have to recognize that as journalists. We have to cover the story accordingly, which means to play it big. We'll just do it once every couple of days. Um, but to play it big and put it at the top of the of the uh, homepage or the top of your broadcast. And uh, we also have to help people understand how they can protect themselves and one another, which we'll get into later. So I think it's a great uh a really great moment and uh, for climate progress. And it certainly comes not a moment too soon. So there's, there's the, uh, the introductory picture. So let's step back just a second, just to, to get to know you in a sense. I'm, I'm just, if you could just tell us um, a little bit about yourself in terms of where you were born, where you went to school and then how you first got into journalism. Wow, we're going way back in the alley. Yeah, well, people, <laughs> I, was I want born, people to, you know, you're, you're, you're a great sure. people to know. I was, born, uh, I was born just outside of New York City in uh, New Jersey. My dad uh, has been in the, was in the broadcasting business. My dad was a TV anchorman. Uh, I had a meeting with my colleagues at CBS News this week, and I said I am a son of CBS News, literally. My dad began his career at uh, CBS News Station in uh, Minneapolis, WCCO, and then he became the uh, he went into TV and became an anchorman back when anchorman did real reporting, and he was known as the Walter Cronkite of Baltimore. So I grew up outside of Baltimore on a farm. Part of the reason I always felt very at home up in Bolinas. Uh, I grew up on a farm, spent all my youth there. I attended Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And that's where I began actually doing journalism in a very, you know, elemental way. And uh, also started to get involved with politics. I studied uh, international, uh, they called the, the, the major international studies. So it was essentially politics and history and economics and languages and social sciences, humanities. And uh, I was hired straight out of college. Actually, I started doing an internship uh, while I was still at Johns Hopkins at the Institute for Policy Studies, which is the left, uh, cent left of center um, think tank in Washington, DC. I spent the start of my career there. I wrote my first two books in Washington, DC. The first book was uh, a book on the nuclear power industry, investigative book called Nuclear Inc. My second book was really the book that sort of established my reputation, and that was a book called On Bended Knee, The Press and the Reagan Presidency. 
and that was an investigative book as well that looked at how uh, Ronald Reagan had gotten such positive media coverage throughout his presidency. And that book came to the, at that point, uh, unusual, unconventional explanation that, no, it wasn't just that Ronald Reagan was a great communicator, although he was. Uh, it was also that the press corps had largely censored itself, and in many cases due to pressure from corporate ownership up above. So after I wrote uh, On Bended Knee, I suddenly was sort of like the uh, favorite boy of the month for a little while in the uh, mainstream, or at least the sort of the, the left margin of the mainstream media. So I was already writing for the New Yorker at that point, but I was became invited to become a columnist at Rolling Stone, a regular media commentator for NPR at Morning Edition. And, uh, but then that quickly found out within two years that, that um, a lot of those places that thought they wanted this young, you know, firebrand reporter um, on their staff, they didn't really want what I was reporting. So I found myself censored at National Public Radio, censored at Rolling Stone Magazine, et cetera. And we don't have to get into the specifics, but it was kind of eye-opening to me. And I was so disgusted that uh, I then got an invitation to speak at the uh, Stockholm annual conference of the Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Some of you may remember that. Uh, excellent organization. They went on to, um, I think by then they'd actually already won the um, Nobel Prize for, for peace uh, one year. And so I, uh, by that time, I had moved out here to California from Washington. And uh, the invitation to go to Stockholm made me realize, well, Stockholm's halfway around the world. Why don't I just keep going? Because I was kind of sick of being in the United States. And so I left the United States, uh, turned out to be for most of the next seven years, and traveled around the world to write my next book, which was uh, called Earth Odyssey, Around the World in Search of Our Environmental Future. And that was an attempt to uh, really go at the ground level and report on what the environmental crisis looked like and felt like and was experienced by uh, ordinary people around the world. How close were we to uh, the dangers that were being talked about in the 1990s about global warming, as we called it then, um, the ozone depletion, acid rain, population growth, all of these items. That book, so I spent most of the next seven years living overseas, uh, especially in, in Europe. And um, that's also when I wrote the Beatles book that began as a, as a New Yorker profile and then turned into the, um, the book. That was probably the single biggest scoop I've had in my life was um, the New Yorker piece that reported that the Beatles were getting back together. Uh, with obviously a posthumous contribution from John Lennon to uh, release their first new music in 25 years. And uh, so that book came out and then Earth Odyssey came out. And then I moved back here to the United States and uh, resettled here in San Francisco and um, uh, have been a reporter and journalist since then. Hot was written uh, largely about my daughter, uh, Kiara Hertzgard who uh, was born in 2005 and was born just a few months before I interviewed the British science advisor uh, right after Hurricane Katrina had uh, leveled New Orleans. And uh, I was doing a, a cover story for Vanity Fair magazine uh, about climate change and why it wasn't being taken seriously here in the United States. And um, 
Sir David King, the science advisor, made me realize that, look, <laughs> um, even if we do take it seriously, which we must, there's this long lag time that even if we turn off all the global warming emissions tonight, which would obviously be a hypothetical, um, even so, the Earth will continue to warm, the temperatures will continue to rise, and all of the impacts will continue to strengthen for about another 30 years. And at that, that very day was when I decided to write hot, because I still remember the scene, and I write about it in the book, after finishing the interview with Sir David King, I was quite staggered, frankly, and I was trying to clear my head and I, I walked just past uh, the Parliament building there in the UK and Big Ben and all that. And I was crossing over the river and I was thinking about everything that he had said. And um, it suddenly struck me that uh, I was a, a new dad. I was very new to being a dad at that point. Kiara was only five months old. And I literally, it was like someone had just stopped me with a punch to the chest and I went, oh my God, Kiara has to live through this. And then I took another breath and I said, Kiara has to live through this. And so that's when I set out to try and write a book that would describe what it would take for her and her counterparts around the world to survive the next 50 years on earth. I, I called them generation hot. And that's really been my, most of my work ever since has been to try and write about uh, climate change, talk about it on the radio, television, et cetera. And then um, I'll fast forward just to the last two years where I uh, co-founded uh, an organization called Covering Climate Now. And this is a voluntary global journalistic consortium of uh, news outlets that are committed to doing more and better coverage of the climate story. And it was co-founded by the Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation magazine, along uh, with The Guardian newspaper, which has been doing the best coverage of climate. And we now have over 460 news outlets around the world who are part of our consortium, including some of the biggest names in news, CBS, uh, NBC, PBS, uh, Reuters, Bloomberg, Agence France Press, and also some of the smallest names in news. And we like that too. In fact, we're very proud to claim, since we're here in, in Bolinas virtually, we're very proud to claim that the Hearsay News is one of the partners of Covering Climate Now as well. And I invite all of you who are interested in uh, how the media covers climate change to visit our website, coveringclimatenow.org. Um, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter if you'd like. And there's a lot of information on there about what the press is doing. And one last word is that the reason that we did this is that uh, two years ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change scientists came out with a landmark report. You'll remember the headlines, where they, the headlines were 12 years to save life on Earth, where they basically laid out that, okay, if we're gonna avoid absolute disaster on this planet, we have got to leave the fossil fuel economy behind, and we've gotta get halfway there by 2030. We have to cut the emissions by 45%. And the scientists explained that doing that is going to require literally unprecedented, in human history, unprecedented transformational change in every sector of the world economy. They said the energy sector, the construction sector, the agriculture sector, the transportation sector, the finance sector, the housing sector. And they mentioned all these sectors 
And I'm just covering the, the press conference as a reporter. And I noticed that they don't mention the media sector. And that's when the light went off in my head to, to start something that became Covering Climate Now, because I realized that if we don't transform the media sector, none of those other sectors are going to transform in time because there will not be the public awareness and therefore the political pressure on governments and corporations to do what needs to be done as quickly as it needs to be done. And so bringing the conversation full circle, I think now in the last week with what we've seen from the Biden administration, there is a real honest to goodness chance that government and corporations and the rest of us are going to be taking the actions uh, at the scope and the uh, scale and the pace that is necessary so that my daughter, who's now 15, and the rest of Generation Hot can have a planet that is uh, survivable. Thank you for that. It's not, it's a not uncommon uh, scenario wherein intellectual and professional awareness of an issue really gets fired up by personal experience of some kind. And so there you are, right? And we'll come back to that at the end with your book. So you're talking about the, the recent actions in the Biden. Let's just quickly uh, go through a couple of these and you tell us what your take is on why they're important. What does rejoining the Paris Agreement mean? The United States is the biggest greenhouse gas polluter in history. And uh, don't be confused here, folks. It's often in the, in the media, uh, China has said, oh, they're the biggest emitter. And this is one of the things we're you know, trying to work on with the media. That is true on an annual basis. But the atmosphere does not care about annual. The atmosphere cares about cumulative. And cumulatively, the United States is still the biggest polluter. So for us to be outside of the Paris Agreement is just... First of all, it kind of makes it mathematically impossible for the rest of the world to, to get there. Um, you'll re remember that Paris uh, was signed in December of 2015, and the agreement, which was unprecedented to have all of the countries on Earth agree to this, except for one or two, um, we're going to limit emissions such that we can keep the temperature rise to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, which used to be thought of as the safe zone, two degrees. Now it's more like that's the difference between um, extremely dangerous and fatally dangerous. So we really have to hit those targets and hitting those targets without the single biggest polluter on earth and also the biggest economy on earth would be literally physically impossible. So that's why it's so important that the U.S. is returning. And also uh, just for diplomatic reasons, if the U.S., if the biggest polluter is out, it gives a pass for anybody else who says, oh, we don't want to do this, like Brazil right now, which is a major emitter. You know, well, when Trump was in, well, the U.S. isn't doing it. Why should we do it? So it's very important um, for all those reasons that the U.S. is coming back. And as you may have seen, uh, just on Wednesday, President Biden also announced that he is convening a, a global climate summit of other world leaders at the White House, virtually, of course, on Earth Day, April 22. And that is a very specific effort to jumpstart these negotiations because this November in Glasgow, Scotland, the world comes back together for the follow-up to the Paris Agreement. And we basically are going to be hearing about, okay, here's what we're doing concretely to get to those goals of 1.5 to 2 degrees C. And so there's a lot there. We'll come back a little bit. <laughs> How about uh, canceling the Keystone Pipeline? Very controversial. What does that mean? 
Keystone Pipeline. That was the landmark uh, fight around climate during the Biden years. And the Biden administration had, or sorry, during the Obama years, rather. And the Obama administration had to be dragged kicking and screaming to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. Those of you who uh, were involved with that, you'll remember that Keystone is a pipeline that would basically go from Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf of Mexico and carry some of the world's dirtiest and most carbon-intensive fossil fuels, the so-called tar sands from Alberta down to the Gulf of Mexico for sale to the outside world. And this was a, a fight that was also very important in defining the U.S. environmental movement and the direction that that movement has taken over the last 10 years, because it was Bill McKibben and a lot of the young activists who went on to, to start 350.org joining with indigenous leaders in Alberta and along the, the pipeline, proposed pipeline route in Minnesota and so forth, Nebraska, who said, no, we're going to stop this. And uh, the big environmental groups in Washington, especially the mainstream ones like the Nature Conservancy and the National Wildlife Federation and the League of Conservation Voters, and I can continue on, um, they were all like, oh, no, what, what are you doing? No, no, no. This is you're, 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 you're attacking the Obama administration. Those are our friends. And uh, the sort of the, the others, the youth side of it said, well, they're not our friends if they're, if they're passing Keystone Pipeline and we have to stand up and, and really have a movement. And what, what was decisive about that was that, as McKibben said, you know, at that point, uh, the environmental movement in the United States had everything except the movement. <laughs> we had lawyers, we had policy people, we had lobbyists uh, galore in Washington, D.C., and we were losing because we didn't have a movement of people out in the streets. And that was a big strategic disagreement. And I think that uh, events have shown who was right about that. Uh, and we've seen that, that youth-oriented movement uh, become even stronger in the last couple of years when the same thing kind of played out with our uh, you know, representative here in San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, when the Sunrise Movement, and after 2018 elections, did a sit-in at her office, attacking not, or not attacking, but criticizing not Trump in the White House, but Democrats. Where's your plan? And that's how the Green New Deal got launched onto the, um, onto the uh, national agenda. Again, more or less against what the, the big mainstream environmental groups were doing. So that's part of what's significant about Keystone now being uh, nixed and nixed on the very first day. That's a very clear signal that Biden is sending that we're serious. We heard these young activists uh, and not just we heard them in the sense of, hey, they can help us get elected, which they did, by the way, in November. But also we're hearing them on the science. And we are going to be making science-based policy here. And there is no way that you can scientifically justify building a pipeline that is going to mainstream uh, some of the dirtiest and biggest deposits of uh, carbon on Earth. You can't put that out on the world market and then say that you're serious about fighting climate change. So that's what's really significant about Keystone is that, uh, you know, Biden was really sending a message there and not just to, to the activists, but to the oil industry. The oil industry is now freaking out. There's, you're seeing stories in the business press. <laughs> They're like, whoa, we didn't expect him to be really serious about all this stuff. And, uh, and he is. 
Well, one of the other orders was to cancel uh, oil and gas leases on public land and so forth, too. That's right along those same same dynamic, right? Same dynamic, although there's been less uh, activism around those. I should say not less, but there has been less visible activism in the, in the media. But it's very important. Uh, just remember, folks, that public lands in the United States, that's about a third of the total land area, uh, especially out here in the West. And a lot of that contains a lot of oil and gas and other minerals, by the way. And so it's a major deal. It's not some sort of like, oh, you know, Biden's only doing this for, for uh, cosmetic reasons. No, this is this is a very, very big deal. Now, it's got to go through rulemaking and all of that. It's, it's not like he can sign the executive order to say this is what we want to do. There's rulemaking that has to happen. It's not going to be overnight, but it is a major, major initiative. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mark Hertzgard and host Steve Heilig. So central, obviously, to so much of this is the how we produce and utilize energy. And that's what so much of this is about. And, you know, the goal, kind of the ultimate green goal is to get to net zero, uh, you know, emissions at some point. Uh, you can say what you want about whether how possible that is. But just in a general sense, it seems to me we're talking about requiring a complete transformation of uh, the energy uh human energy, you know, use, um, changing the efficiency standards for cars and even changing it cars to complete to electric or other, um, one debate in there, your first book or what your early book was about nuclear energy. And so that has come up again as a debate, even within the environmental, uh, community and then the issues of things like fracking and so forth too. So yeah. possible, you know, what are you looking at in, of, you know, how this is going to happen over time, this transformation, what are some of the most, uh, you know, the most heated controversies in that? Well, as I said earlier, remember the IPCC report, the 1.5 degree report that came out in October 2018, they called all these changes unprecedented. You know, we basically have to shift out of the fossil fuel economy, which has been running the world economy for the last hundred years. We have to <laughs> transition away from that to a green renewable economy. And that, you know, historically speaking, those kinds of thoroughgoing transformations generally take, you know, at least half a century, if not a hundred years. And so we have to do it in 30 years and we have to get halfway done in the first 10 years, now nine years by 2030. So it is a massive task. And on one hand, it's clear that the Biden administration understands this. They, they, they recognize that science and they are uh, adamant about pursuing it. That's why they, too, are starting to call it an emergency. But, you know, they also have to live in the real world of politics and economics. So uh, one of the questions is how much of his agenda, climate agenda, is he going to be able to uh, achieve in Washington? There's a lot you can do with executive orders. You set a tone in, in addition to actually, you know, you can stop Keystone, but you also set a tone. I don't think it's an accident that, that uh, you know, a day or two after Biden makes these announcements, General Motors shocks the world and says, we are going to sell only electric cars by 2030, 2035 in that range. And again, that also sends a message to the oil companies. 
that, you know, we're not on your side anymore, guys. We're not going to be selling your products within 10 years. So one of the big stories to watch is going to be the, uh, the fate of the oil and gas industry. The smart money has been leaving fossil fuel investments for a decade now. First, coal, which has been dead for quite a while now in the U.S., but now it's going to be happening with oil and gas. So that's a big deal. That said, um, you know, it's not that easy to turn an economy around when it's been mainlining oil and gas for 100 years. So I think Biden's plans are a very impressive combination of scientific uh, validity, but also political plausibility. And they are smart to make this an all of government approach. They are making climate change the core of their economic rebuilding program from the COVID pandemic. As they say, build back better. Uh, the activists are now pushing them, trying to push them even further to say build back fossil free, which is basically what the Biden people want to do. Uh, and we'll see. I think that one of the big questions in Washington and the story that I'm urging my colleagues in the media to be paying close attention to is on Capitol Hill. Um, the administration has made it clear that they're going to do this to the best of their abilities across the executive branch. And the real question is how much of it gets through Congress. And there's a the conventional assumption inside the Beltway is that, oh, you know, the, the Republicans are just going to continue their lockstep opposition to anything that resembles climate. And I'm not so sure about that. I think we have to wait and see because there is a lot of pressure on them now, including from younger Republicans. And this is a story that is still sort of under the radar in most people's understanding, but believe me, the, the pollsters for those Republicans know it, which is that we now have majority support in this country, strong majority support for action on climate change. And for people under the age of 40, that includes a strong majority of Republicans. If you are a Republican and you're under the age of 40, you care about climate change, you're worried about it for your kids or, or yourself, and you want something done. Now, you probably don't want a Green New Deal, but you definitely don't want inaction. And so I think the Republicans see that, and there may be one or two who decide to uh, to vote with Democrats on that, not least because uh, in their home states, a lot of GOP governors and mayors are very big backers of clean energy. You know, Texas happens to be the single biggest state for wind energy production in the U.S. So uh, there's a lot of possibilities here that I think uh, are going to play out in the next coming weeks and months. So a lot of this requires technological transformation too. You know, right, do you? As far as you following this, the uh, issue of changing over to solar, to wind, to all sorts of renewable energy, mm -hmm. is that something that, you know, is uh, feasible and economically sustainable? You know, if I, you read the Wall Street Journal, it's all about jobs, right? And so do you think that this kind of transformation can happen in, a, in an economically sustainable way for, for our country, at least? Oh, no question about it. Um, in fact, that recalls Biden's, uh, I thought, very clever jive during the uh, at Trump during the campaign is that, you know, uh, when Trump hears about climate change, he thinks hoax. When I hear about climate change, I think jobs. 
And that's a very smart thing that the Biden administration is doing is to recognize that uh, that you need to sell this as a jobs program. And uh, and they're right uh, that it can create an enormous number of jobs if you do it correctly. Um, and I take a, a little bit of personal satisfaction in this because I wrote at the end of Earth Odyssey, which is a book that came out 22 years ago now, uh, I proposed that that what we needed was uh, to solve the environmental crisis, not just in the U.S., but globally, was what I called a global Green Deal, which was essentially doing what Biden now wants to do. And, and the Green New Deal is, you know, what Biden is doing is essentially a Green New Deal without the label and without some of the social justice uh, aspects of it that, that they wanted, like guaranteed health care. And uh, I was arguing back then that that's what we needed precisely because if you want average people around the world or in the United States, working people to support this, you've got to understand that most of them want clean air and water and a livable future for their kids, but most of them are struggling to put food on the table and rent in the, in the landlord's hand this month. And if you don't, as an environmental movement, if you don't have an economic program that talks about jobs, you are going to lose and you will deserve to lose because it reveals that you are elitist, well-off people who are not really in touch with where most people are at on this. And there's no reason that a, a Build Back Green kind of program can't be the biggest job creation program in history. And you know, once you create those jobs, you're also creating enormous opportunities for business investment and financial growth. It's not just some sort of a you know, left-wing ideology here. So I think that's enormously uh, uh, hopeful and uh, again, you even see GOP uh, officials, especially at the local level, who are beginning to recognize this. So I think there's there's a real opportunity, but you've got to move fast. I mean, we 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 tragically lost a a vital four years under Donald Trump, where we were galloping in the wrong direction. So get to work. Um. I mentioned nukes, uh, nuclear energy. Do you, do you make a comment on what role that you think that may or may not play in this transformation? It's funny you mentioned that that was my first book, Nuclear Incorporated. That was published in 1983. And I did, I don't know, 100 interviews with nuclear industry executives. The very first time I heard the term global warming was from a nuclear power industry executive in the early 1980s saying this is how we are going to save the industry because uh, there's this thing called global warming and coal makes it worse. And so nuclear is the way to, to save it. And as you say, uh, Steve, that is now re-entering the conversation, but frankly, I don't think it is going to be very important in the conversation. There's a lot more attention being paid to it in, I'm sorry to say, in parts of the media than is warranted. And the reason is basically that there's so, you know, the world has moved beyond that now. And by far the cheapest forms of electricity are both solar and wind and especially efficiency and storage. And nuclear simply cannot compete on those grounds. Nuclear has always been fabulously expensive, ruinously expensive. And, you know, they talk about, oh, we've got a new reactor design now and so forth. Well, okay, you know, if you want to keep investing, do it with private money because public money, by far the best economic uh, deal is with solar, wind, 
efficiency, batteries. That's where the world is going. Uh, one of the biggest uh, emissions producing sectors is how we produce and distribute food as well. So it has, I don't know if you pay much attention to the agricultural sector and possible transformations there. What do you see? Yeah, I, I've done a lot of reporting on that, actually. And it's really great that uh, the Biden people have grasped that as well. You know, when we were at Paris Summit in 2015, um, and certainly at Copenhagen in 2009, agriculture was literally not on the agenda at Copenhagen in 2009. It was marginally on the agenda in 2015. And yet, as you say, Steve, it is the agriculture sector worldwide, especially if you include, include forestry, is massive. It's, a ma it's about one third of all the emissions. So you can't fix the problem if you don't fix that. And what's really exciting, I think, about the agriculture sector is that it can be a positive force for extracting carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, and Biden, this is quite surprising, during the, during the campaign, so a year ago now in January, you know, when the Iowa caucuses, Biden was out there saying we should pay farmers to store carbon in their soil, which is what scientists have been saying forever. And um, that is an enormous uh, potential, uh, a great opportunity, because uh, that not only, like a lot of his climate programs, not only does that address the climate crisis, but it also addresses the immediate economic crisis. We've got an economic crisis in rural America. I come from rural America. I know those people. And the monopolization of farmland and especially the monopolization of the seed companies and the grain companies and, and the pork and the, the meat processors leave these poor farmers with basically uh, such tiny margins that they're being driven out of business. And the, the young people who are growing up on farms, who want to stay on farms, cannot afford to do it. Uh, so we've got a real crisis in rural America. And if we were to reverse our policies there and prioritize climate protection, we would not only help to address that crisis by, yes, paying farmers to, to, soil, to store carbon in their soil, but that also has this triple benefit where you then make the soil more productive and more resilient to the climate impacts that are coming. The derechos that knocked out one third of the soybean crop in, in Iowa last summer, the droughts, the heat waves, the storms, etc. So I'm uh, very hopeful about um, the possibilities there. I see someone in the chat mentions that uh, Tom Vilsack was not good on that when he was Obama's Secretary of, Secretary of Agriculture, and that's true. But um, I think Mr. Vilsack is having a uh, change of heart. There was just an interview he did two days ago as part of Biden's new team, and, and he's you know, again, the world has moved on. It's a very different world in climate than it was when Obama took power 12 years ago. And now these are things like carbon storage in the soil are, uh, they're, they're very close to mainstream ideas, partly because they, you know, they spent a lot of time in the wilderness at places, you know, like Commonwealth, you guys have the, the um, uh, regenerative agriculture farm there. All that work that has been done so patiently at uh, the grassroots level for a long time, and followed up in, in some of the universities, that's not coming to fruition and is ready to turn into policy. So I'm very hopeful about that. But with the big caveat 
that they have to continue to be pushed. That's why it's so important and, and valuable that there is a really muscular and sophisticated climate movement out there now, especially here in the United States, which is one I know the best, um, where they are pushing hard. They've achieved a lot. They pushed Biden in his campaign last year. He started with almost the worst climate platform as a, as a Democratic candidate. And then he ended up with by far the strongest climate platform of any major presidential candidate in U.S. history. And that happened because Bernie Sanders and the Sunrise Movement pushed Biden to do it. But it also happened because, to his credit, Biden let himself be pushed. He saw that he needed that for electoral reasons, but I think he also realized, I think, he's, I think he takes seriously that this is an existential threat and that we have to deal with it accordingly. You uh, going globally again, you mentioned China, I believe. And um, so one of the fascinating things that happened in this past year with the pandemic is the downturn on emissions that came with the economic uh, slowdowns and shutdowns <clears throat> about how sustainable that is, what it really means. But, you know, one of the arguments that you often hear about all this is that if the biggest populations in the world, China and India in particular, don't fully get on board, then whatever other people do might not matter so much. So um, you have thoughts on how the, you know, a lot of this is about Paris as, as well, but how does international pressure and agreement uh, really push this forward in a positive way? That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I was the first Western reporter to go in and do the climate story in China in the late 1990s. And that was that and my experiences in Africa while doing the Earth Odyssey book were what led me to propose a global green deal that said, we're not going to get anywhere on climate unless we address poverty at the very same time in the very same breath. Because you cannot tell people who are starving to death or you know, some of the peasants I remember seeing in China, I still see this woman's uh, in my mind's eye, an older woman, it's January, she is shoeless, bare feet, doing the laundry, in this freezing river, right? You cannot tell people like that, that they cannot have coal unless you give them something better. And so Global Green New Deal was intended to, to help China with aid as necessary, technological help to um, not build coal-fired power plants, but to, to do you know green alternatives. And you can make the same case with India and all these other places. So that's why it's so critical that the US is back in Paris, because you cannot, <laughs> you cannot tell anybody else to do that if you're not doing it. But we also have to be very careful that even if we're back in, we've got to acknowledge that rich-poor divide and not pretend that we don't have some responsibility to help them. And in fact, that is written into the Paris Agreement, that the rich countries, who let's remember, are the ones who put all that carbon into the atmosphere. That's why we have this problem, is that they industrialize using coal and oil and gas. They are obligated under the Paris Agreement to be, to be providing $100 billion a year to poor countries around the world to do two things, to choose solar, wind, et cetera, rather than coal and oil and gas, and also to help them prepare for the climate impacts that are now unavoidable. You know, there are thousands of people dying around the world already every year from climate impacts, whether it's droughts or, or sea level rise or storms or what have you. Um, 
that's that's happening now. And that's going to get worse as the uh, temperatures continue to rise. And we need to be helping them to adapt to that. That's a lot of what the book Hot is about, is to recognize that climate change is now a, a two-dimensional problem. You've got to mitigate, you've got to turn off the, 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 the emissions that are making it worse, but you've also got, also got to reckon with the fact that we're already locked in to a lot of damage on this planet, and we have to help these uh, poor communities in particular prepare for that. So that's got, to, I think that's the key to making this work in terms of talking to India and China and a lot of these other places is for, you know, the, the wealthy world to step up to its responsibilities. And the U.S. has been very recalcitrant on that, not just under Trump, even under Obama, who, to his credit, you know, they signed the Paris Accord. But even there, Washington, you know, you can't, the president alone can't send that money. So you need to have Congress to agree that we're going to step up and honor our commitments under the Paris Agreement and send uh, money through the U.N., of course, to, to help uh, climate efforts worldwide. You're, you're touching on, uh, in an international sense, ecological justice, as it's called, you know, in a sense. So the, the impacts are worldwide and on everybody, but poor people uh, anywhere seem to be the first impacted and the worst. And that includes just in the United States, you know. Yeah. So, you know, any thoughts? That's one of the main, uh, that's another really encouraging aspect of Biden's proposals is that uh, they get it on environmental justice and it's not lip service. He has pledged that 40% of his uh, of the funds that would go out under his climate plan, which is somewhere between 1.7 and 1.9 trillion dollars, 40% of those monies would go to uh, disadvantaged communities that are disproportionately uh, affected by climate. And the people that he is appointing to his uh, cabinet and to his White House staff and throughout the uh, executive branch, again, are people who have been singing this song for a long time. So it's a very encouraging sign that environmental justice will now be at the center of climate policy in the United States. Uh, coming back a bit to denial uh, and funding, you know, denial was always a well-funded, <coughs> I love the science, a well-funded dynamic, you know, and you mentioned the oil industry, energy freaking out. But on the other hand, we've seen in seems in recent years that they've, you know, acknowledged reality and trying to shift toward the future so they can survive, too. But the propaganda is still out there, it seems to me, if you look at a lot of the you know, more right leaning media and so forth. So how do you see that unfolding? With time? I mean, obviously, your your effort with covering climate is to fight that at this point. But um, you know, what do you yes, I think? I think that battle, frankly, has been won in all except for the sort of Fox News um, Rush Limbaugh world, which is not a small world. OK, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but nobody else takes that denial stuff seriously anymore. Um, even Republicans now are are not uh, as full throated on the denial. They're like it's now shifted to, well, you know, we don't want to break the economy, et cetera. That's not to say though, that the disinformation isn't still going to be coming. What the disinformation now is shifting to is companies like Exxon trying to position themselves as friends of, uh, a, of a safe climate future. They're doing their part. They're working on carbon removal, et cetera, et cetera. That's the greenwashing of today and tomorrow, uh, that they are somehow you know, serious about fixing the problem. And 
yes, you're right. At Covering Climate Now, we are urging our uh, partner news outlets to scrutinize those claims. And, you know, it's very simple to, to, uh, to do that story is just here's what the oil companies are saying, but here's what their plans are for uh, investment and production and exploration and extraction going forward. And, um, you know, most of them, with a couple of exceptions, are still planning to increase oil and gas production in the years ahead, so they say. And that is absolutely <clears throat> incompatible with a 1.5 degree or 2 degree world. So I, I think that uh, what will really be decisive there, and although it's much credit goes to the activists who have been pushing uh, big institutions to divest, and there's now literally tens of trillions of dollars of wealth who have divested from the fossil fuel companies. That's very useful. But what's really going to uh, be uh, sort of, I think, decisive uh, for these companies is that now uh, finance capital around the world is fleeing these investments. As I mentioned earlier, coal has been dead for some years now, but oil and gas is now on life support, I would say, in terms of their financial capital. And these are big companies, but they cannot do the uh, exploration and production of fossil fuels at the scale that they're used to without the uh, backing of big banks and insurance companies and other sources of, of uh, investment. So once that investment uh, stream begins to be shut off, which is happening already just this week, uh, BlackRock, which is the biggest private investment uh, you know, fund manager in the world, has uh, followed up on previous announcements and said, we are going to be uh, not, not investing anymore in companies that don't have a plausible uh, plan and trajectory for getting to net zero emissions by 2050. So that's pretty huge. Uh, so I think that that is where the, you know, they're going to be disinforming, um, but I think that's a, a losing battle. And frankly, those of you out there, if anybody is, is I always get this question, um, you know, what, 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 what do I say to the people who are deniers, uh, whether it's in my family or my workplace or whatever. And, um, my answer to that is nothing. Do not waste your time. Do not waste your breath talking to people who are determined not to, uh, engage whose minds are made up far better that you use your time working with the people who are determined to change this. That's where the winds of history are blowing now. That's what there's all these opportunities. And, uh, you know, we just have to keep pushing. Put your energies there. As McKibben says, my old pal McKibben says, when you've got 75% of the country agreeing with you, don't waste your time trying to convince the other 25% who won't be convinced anyway. Work with those 75% to keep pushing forward. So some of those, as you mentioned, are very young people. Um, you know, they've been called climate kids. There's Greta Thunberg, extraordinary, uh, you know, development. You know, how do you feel about that? I mean, have you had interactions with a lot of these young people, uh, some of them? And, um, you know, I mean, this seems to me to be a crucial development in this because it's their future, you know, and um, the amount of activism and visibility that they've had has really been striking. We would not be where we are today. <clears throat> without their actions, and especially Greta, but not only Greta, um, they have upended the political and the media conversation on climate change 
in the last uh, two to three years. They've put it to the top of the agenda. They have forced it to the top of the public agenda. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I, I obviously welcome that enormously. And it's the kind of thing that, that um, I don't think that our work at Covering Climate Now would have been anywhere near as effective if, they, if the kids weren't doing that. Because when you have, first it was tens of thousands of young people skipping school to go march in the streets. Then it became literally millions of kids skipping. When that happens, news outlets cannot not cover that story. Of course, we have to cover that story. And by the way, the reason we know about Greta in the first place is because of the media. The, there was a BBC reporter who happened to be walking by her when she was sitting out there by herself in front of the Swedish parliament and thought it was kind of an interesting, almost a quaint story to do. And up that story went on the BBC and boom, it went viral, got picked up in Australia, and that's how it all started. So, uh, you know, I, I say that to my media colleagues to remind them of the responsibility that we have and to reflect on the fact that when we don't do that, that's equally important. <laughs> when we are not covering the Greta Thunbergs, that's equally important. That's, that's part of the reason that we did not see progress. So they have been enormously uh, uh, influential. As I say, they pushed Biden. Uh, and pushed Bernie's candidacy before that, which is why they were able to push Biden. They got Biden over the finish line in Georgia in particular. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania is where the best data comes from, where uh, these uh, young climate organizers and racial justice organizers pushed up youth turnout in the 2020 U.S. elections over 10%. Used to, it's usually comes in around, you know, it's a scandalous number for people under the age of 30, usually about only 36 to 38% of them vote in the U.S. Last November, it was 47%, I think. So basically a 10% difference. That's what made the difference in these elections. So, um, and believe me, the political team around Biden knows that. That's part of the reason that they're doing what they're doing now. So you cannot overstate the importance of uh, these young people. And, um, if you want to help support them, they can use donations. Uh, there's one young woman in particular who is uh, I'm very impressed by, um, whose name is uh, uh, Alexandria Villasenor. I wrote about her in The Nation. The Nation, I'm proud to say, we were the very first to write about Greta Thunberg in the United States. And in that very first piece, we wrote about this young woman in New York City, um, Alexandria uh, Villasenor, who was, again, by herself, climate striking in front of the UN for weeks until she finally got some media attention first from us and then a lot of other people. So um, God bless them is all I can say. God bless them. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mark Hertzgard and host Steve Heilig. Um, so with these new young people, do you see an increase in diversity Oh, yeah. I'm sorry I didn't mention that. That's one of the most exciting things about them. To them, you know, environmental justice, which in their minds includes not just economic justice, not just racial justice, but gender justice, which is a huge part of this whole conversation that usually gets no attention. Um, that's front and center for them. Front and center. You know, frontline communities, we have to listen to them. We have to listen to the indigenous communities. Uh, Greta Thunberg makes a big effort to not have the media spotlight all on her as a young, you know, privileged white woman from Sweden. Um, so yeah, that's 
that's huge and that's such a great strength to to this movement say, say more if you can about gender justice you know the next the second round of biden's uh executive yeah. some of them have to do with reproductive rights and right. quality in that sense so how does yeah. that well you know that that ties in directly to the population question and um there's a book that's, that's, that's often a third rail in 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 right. uh, Environmentalism and politics. So, you know, I'm glad you. Yeah, well, let's talk about population because it's very easy, especially for privileged white people, to think, oh, population is the real problem here. And again, almost every time I give a public presentation, somebody says, well, don't we really have to get a population? So let's be clear here, folks. Is population important? Yes. Is it a problem? Yes. But it's a problem for the people who live with it, it's not the problem for the planet. You want to know what the problem for the planet is? It's the consumption of people like you and me. So get off your damn high horse about population. And let's talk about the consumption levels of uh, the rich world. The top 1%, and I don't think there's probably many of them on our call today, but they, uh, let's say their environmental footprint, so not just climate, but environment in general, is as not surprising, is equal to the entire bottom half of the population of the planet because they're flying on private jets, because they have three or four or five homes, because they have all these cars, et cetera, et cetera. So one child, when I wrote Earth Odyssey, this is 20 years ago now, one American child had the environmental footprint of 13 children in Brazil, of 138 children in Senegal, in Africa, uh, and so you can do the math for the other parts of the world. So, yes, it's consumption that is driving the environmental crisis. Now, that said, I said a moment ago, population is a problem for the people living with it. And it's particularly a problem for the females around the planet who are giving birth to those children. And they oftentimes, because they have no uh, gender justice in their communities or their countries, they don't have much of a choice. They are beginning to <clears throat> have children uh, without much volition as teenagers, and they have as many children as uh, the male-dominated person and, and community structure around them uh, requires of them. Whereas once you invest in uh, sort of female equality and liberation, and you uh, give them access to education, and you also make it clear that being a mother, although a wonderful thing to do in life, um, is not the only path for females in life. And crucially, your point, Steve, with uh, reproductive rights, just being able to have access to contraception has a huge impact on the birth rates because, you know, many women do want to have children, but they want to have them later than the age of 18 or 19. So that's why the, uh, the population uh, issue is so tied to gender justice and so tied to, to, to climate um, and why it's very important that Biden just the other day, you know, we're now going to be, again, funding the United Nations um, Population Agency, which is a major uh, distributor of contraception and reproductive rights and justice around the world. Crucial stuff. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> There's a concept out there called echo grief, echo anxiety, um, you know, living with the awareness of the challenges and potential disasters that we face. So 
I don't know how personal you want to get, but I know you've been you know, living with this, writing about it for a long time. And um, how does that impact you? How do you feel about it? Um, obviously, we seem to be on an upturn here with all we've been talking about with the new administration. But, you know, it can't be easy, um, you know, dealing with that basically 24-7. Well, I feel a lot better about it today than I did <laughs> three months ago, as you well know. Yes, I will confess here today, I have dealt with um, environmental grief and climate despair a lot in my personal life. Um, I've been on the climate beat now for 30 years, and I've watched how the world has, until very recently, basically stayed on the same trajectory and not really listened very much to those of us who were trying to, to wave the, the, the flag and say, this is, you know, this way lies disaster. So, and of course it gets worse once you have uh, children because there's nothing in the world that matters more to you than them. And you can see what's coming, what's, what's ahead if we don't change. So it's a real issue. Um, and it's something that actually we're working on at Covering Climate now to, to work with our fellow journalists to, um, to not be defeated by it. And this is a whole longer discussion that you could have a whole session on alone. But I would just say one thing, which is that to me, the only way to deal with uh, climate despair is to take action, is to be doing something about it. <clears throat> and... Of course, you hope that what you do is is uh, efficacious and has some effect, but none of us can really know at the time the answer to that question. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing something that's going to make a difference? You try, you hope. But in terms of dealing with climate despair, what's important is that you do something and you leave the, the outcome to whatever, to fate, the universe, God, whatever you believe in. But do your best. Do what you can. And that is not only essential to solving the problem. It's, I find, and many others find, it's essential to uh, maintaining your sanity while you're doing it. Because if you fall too deeply into despair, you become paralyzed. And that not only does you no good, but it all but ensures that we're not going to fix this. And so, as I say, now we are, the, 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 the corner has been turned. It's a, it genuinely is a new day. And so, even though, yes, the scientific outlook is still very sobering, um, and yes, there are people dying today from climate impacts around the world, and there will be people dying tomorrow from them as well, at least now we have a real chance to get this thing under control while there's still time. And so that to me is, is a game changer. Thank you for that. I think that's um, really the best place I can think of to, to conclude this here today, unless you have more you want to say, but that uh, is the message that I was hoping to hear from you. And, you know, somebody so informed on this to be able to give us a note of optimism with all the work that needs to be done. Um, that's very important. So I want to thank you, Mark, very much for your time. I know what your schedule is like these days. 
And so spending this this time with us is, is we're very grateful for that. And uh, we will hope to have you on again with a report back on all the great things that have happened. So thank well, thanks, Steve. It's, it's really been my pleasure to be here. I, I feel like I'm part of the Commonweal family. So um, thank you for having me back and we'll, we'll do it again sometime soon. And those of you who are interested, please come to our website, coveringclimatenow.org. You can sign up for our newsletter, The Climate Beat, and uh, you'll hear uh, everything that's going on with the media uh, on this very important issue. So thanks again for having me today. All right. Thank, thank you. And you. thank you, everybody, for joining in. And Kara, turn it back over to you if you have something to sign us off. Other I will. I just wanted to thank you both. Uh, Mark, you are part of the Commonwealth family. Come back anytime. And just want to remind you that these uh, recordings of the conversation will be available on our website. And uh, please uh, make a donation if you possibly can so that we can keep these programs going. Steve Heilig and Mark Hertzgard, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Good day. Bye. Bye. See you next time. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Mark Hertzgard and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.